Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I will be your host, along with Ronaldo Brutico, for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy, as well as a wealth advisor and estate planning consultant with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering two major topics, along with our lightning round. As always, we will include questions and comments from you, our audience. We already have a fair number of questions in the queue that we've received both by email and by phone earlier. Uh, so if you'd like to place a question, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the pound key. Um, again, on this call, we try to present you with our members and listeners with concrete, actionable ideas uh, that you can use in your own investing and your own looking at the markets. Uh, today, we originally were going to start off with a section on the elections and the impact on the economy. However, because of current events, we're going to do a slight shift. Uh, and we're going to be talking first about the halt in foreclosures. Uh, then later on, we'll talk about the elections and the impact uh, that may have on the economy, what the outcome of the elections may determine for us in the future, and also how that may impact uh, the green economy as well. And then during, in between our two segments, I'm sorry, we'll be doing our expanded lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, dollar, energy, real estate. And today we're going to have particular emphasis, again, on what commodities you might want to be holding post the elections. With that, let me introduce Ronaldo. And um, Ronaldo, here we are. Let's get going. Well, thank you, Howard. And uh, for those who can tell my voice is a little different this, this month, uh, I'm just recovering from a bout of laryngitis. I've been traveling for six weeks, and it finally got to me. But I, uh, I wouldn't miss this call for anything. So put up with the scratchiness in my voice, and I can, I can definitely uh, push through. Uh, so thanks for doing this again with us, Howard. And um, I would love to start just with the foreclosure crisis. Okay. Is that a good place? Yeah, let's do that. And I wanted to first explain for those people who may not be up to speed on this, what exactly is the crisis, what is happening, and what are some of the uh, news headlines that are a result of that, and are they right or, in, or incorrect? Yeah. yeah, so the news headlines, the, the, the superficial news headlines, which I think everybody's seen by now, is that the Wells Fargo, Bank of America, all the major, the Citigroup, all the major lenders are voluntarily suspending foreclosure practices. Uh, and the question is, should the government force a, a permanent foreclosure uh, suspension? I think not. I think this is one where the markets are actually doing the job they need to do. And, and what this all resulted from, and by the way, there's 40 attorneys general, meaning 40 separate states, are bringing suit. To, to clean up the foreclosure mess. What is the foreclosure mess? In a word, it's this. What the banks wanted to do was to push the elephant through the, pipe, uh, through the python. In other words, swallow these, this giant chunk of, of bad mortgages, push them through the python as fast as they could, like a big lump, get them out the back end, and in that way, reduce their exposure because every day the foreclosure property remains outstanding, the bank is losing more money. And what it was was, it was feeding a certain amount of speculation. Let me give you an example. One of every four houses sold in the last quarter was sold as a foreclosure. Well, the good news is 75% of those houses weren't. Now, the foreclosure, this wave of foreclosure, which was the largest number last month of all time, I believe, that, that, that huge wave of foreclosures, which was going to keep pounding us for another 12 to 18 months, was stopped for one good reason. It turns out virtually every major lender was breaking the law. I know that will come as very little surprise to people who've lost faith in the banks. Uh, but the sadness is what they did is they violated systematically across the country, and I believe intentionally, by the way. They violated the requirement that if you're going to engage in a foreclosure, you must have some officer of the bank assemble the file, read the file, make sure that the documents are in order, make sure that the foreclosure is properly held, make sure that the steps prior to foreclosure have been taken, and then sign that document and send it to court. What has been happening is what they call robo-signing. We have one affidavit from a guy in, in, in the East Coast who claims he signed 10,000 documents a month and didn't read any of them. What it now appears is clear is that was systematic and across the whole country. And that's why they voluntarily suspended it, because 
Every single one of those foreclosures is now subject to being unwound. The mess here is enormous. On the other hand, the current uh, pitch that you're hearing on the media, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, the Financial Times of London, the Wall Street Journal, or the New York Times, the sub-story that's starting to run is, oh, my God, this will make it worse for the housing market. And that's where I think they're wrong. This suspension of foreclosures is actually a good thing for the housing market. And not only that, it's a good thing for the right reason. People, those laws were there for a good reason, and then they get followed, we'll get a better result. You want me to explain how, Howard? Yeah, actually, yeah, we just have some interference actually on our computer line here. Um, some background noise, which I need to get some help uh, turning down. And um, anyway, let me, but continue. Before you explain what's right about this, can you explain why people are saying this is a bad thing? Why, yeah, that, what's their, their attitude about this? The spin, which is coming out of the banks and out of um, large professional real estate organizations, is that this will cause an overhang of bad mortgages many months out into the future, years perhaps. And because of that overhang, somehow that will discourage buyers. I think that's completely false. I think that what it's going to do is discourage speculation. And people who listen to this show know that one of my favorite themes is to keep pointing out where speculation occurs in the economy, speculation being a nice word for gambling, and to point that out so that we stop speculating and we start investing in America and in each other. But and why, the would these stories, why would these stories be out there in the first place? I mean, who's, where is this coming from? Well, because the speculation... Is it just sloppy journalism or is it intentional yeah, mismessage? Look, it's sloppy journalism, but that's nothing new. The journalists rely for their information, quote-unquote, not in hard, not in the old days like by investigating, but by going to a source who supposedly knows something about it. The law, I was watching CNN this morning, I believe, and the woman who sold more real estate than anybody in America works for Prudential. She's on saying, oh, it's going to be a terrible thing. Well, what it, she means by that is all of those accounts, and apparently she had lots of them, who were people buying on speculation. In other words, buying on someone else's misery in the belief that if they bought through a foreclosure process, they could get something even below market and then flip it in six months to a year. That, in turn, doesn't really help the market. Now, let's take the 75% of the houses that were bought and sold last month and last quarter, which were not part of foreclosure. Those houses were bought and sold because of two reasons. One, the market's at a very favorable price. You're probably never, and I said this three or four shows ago, you're probably never in our lifetime going to have this combination of low prices for housing, for domestic or residential real estate, combined with 30-year low mortgages that are so low, it's hard to see how you could buy a house and live in it for 10 years and not do better than renting it at this point in time. So those people who are willing to buy those houses today, because there still is a need for housing, and 75% of them were people who bought at this low market point, those people are going to get a heck of a deal. And because we're not going to have any robo-signing in the future, that means there won't be a wave of foreclosed properties hitting the market any given month or quarter. Instead, what will happen is the banks will be forced to follow the law and very carefully and methodically bleed those foreclosed properties back into the system. In, and I think in a digestible stream, so that we'll have the market won't, will actually recover probably faster because these foreclosures have been stopped. And I don't believe the long-term negative impact of when they start being resumed will be bad because they'll come in at a much slower human rate and the market will be able to digest them more easily than they were able to digest an elephant to try to go through a python. Let me ask you a couple of quick questions. First, that 25% figure, is that an actual published figure, or is that mm -hmm. just an approximate mm -hmm. figure that's been bandied about? Well, that's, that's a published figure that, that the media has been repeating widely enough that if it wasn't true when they started, they'll make it true at the end. But that's, okay. that's actually a widely accepted figure. Right. So if those 25% of homes come off the market temporarily while this is sorted through, then that would seem to reduce the available housing stock up for purchase by, let's say, 25%, meaning you'd have greater demand on the remaining 75% of houses that come to market. Um, and as we all know, normal times, supply and demand work together, and that you would think that the prices on those houses would rise. So the question is, is do you think that would happen? And the second part of that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Actually, I, I think is. it's actually better than you said, Howard, because, see, the fact that a quarter of the sales were on foreclosed properties 
doesn't indicate the relative percentage of the available housing that was for sale in a given month. Some people would argue, and in places like Las Vegas, there's no question this is true, um, that the volume of foreclosed properties represents far more than 25% of the market once the foreclosures are all completed. So when you take that chunk off the market, because they're frozen now, they cannot sell a foreclosed property almost anywhere in America today. When you take that chunk off, you say, wow, the amount of available housing may have gone down by more than 25%, thereby causing the housing market to firm up, meaning that there's less available stock, there's still people who want to buy houses to live in them, so forget the speculators for a moment. The speculators will be on the sideline, no question, but that's probably a good thing. And the people who want to have a house to live in, those people are going to be able to get a very, very good buy because the volume of houses changing hands is still quite good, and the prices are quite low, and the interest rates are at an all-time low. By the way, there's another benefit here, which is because the banks won't be able to put these mortgages behind them, the banks will pay a penalty in lost revenues and lost profits, which may force the banks to do more lending, which they've been reticent to do. That's, so that's a double good thing. Now, having said that, well, I, will, will the housing market go statement. up or not? I'm not sure, but it would certainly help to firm it. Well, let, let me again go back to your last statement about the banks uh, being forced to lend more. Now, since they may be tied up in this mortgage situation, um, the, one of the reasons they have not been lending in the past is that they've been making more money in what's known as the carry trade, where they invest simply in a treasury or a CD or something else elsewhere, earned 1% or 2 or 3%. And then payback borrowers under one percent right now. I think the rates are, you know, under one half of a percent in most banks, or, or far lower. Um, would that affect that equation? Would that allow them or trigger them to um, find other sources of profit revenue, or would they still try to play the carry trade? No, they're, they're, look, they're still going to want to play the carry trade because it's free money and no risk, very little risk um, at the present time. They're still going to want to do, do derivatives because they think that's free gambling money and very little risk, although, as we both know, there's enormous risk to the derivative market. I think the banks are asleep at the switch there and don't realize that. And for the first quarter ever, we started to see derivatives start to come down because of the Frank Dodd bill passing, by the way. So a very good thing quietly has happened in the back rooms where banks are realizing, uh-oh, we better get back to lending. No, the reason I made the comment about the banks getting back to lending in the real estate market is because the way banks' balance sheets are constructed, they have a certain amount of dollars out in a particular sector, in this case, home mortgages. If a big chunk of that portfolio stays underperforming, in order to attract capital, in order to convince people they know what they're doing, the banks will want to add good home mortgages in to balance the losses they're taking on the bad ones. So I think what it will do is cause the banks to be a little more aggressive in finding new good home loans to replace the ones that they have to carry on their books over time so that they will appear to be smarter than perhaps they are but in any event, appear to have a more balanced real estate investment portfolio in residential mortgages. Now, where that will be biggest, by the way, you'll see the biggest effect with Wells, Citigroup, and B of A. And B of A, as we know, took over Countrywide, which had been the country's largest lender before the collapse mm -hmm. in 2008. So they're and probably the worst. A lot of this probably, yeah. And probably the worst lender mm -hmm. in terms of bad portfolio. Right. So that's really where I am on that subject. Now, I think... We can ask more questions or take questions on this if people have them, but now I'd like to tie that to the original topic, which was, what's at stake in this election? Because, you see, everything we just said assumes, like, will the housing market firm up? Will there be a further deterioration of the housing market two years from now? No, etc. That's all true if you make one big assumption, and this assumption is as follows. You have to assume that the Republicans do not get control of the Congress, of the House of Representatives. Now, why is that so important? Everybody who listens to the show knows that I have scrupulously been neither a Democrat or Republican for 15, 20 years, personally 15 years. I'm making economic comments here. The economic comments are simply these. The Republican Party, in order to gain power, has staked out economic positions which are literally suicidal. The idea that we would not pass the Bush tax cuts and make them permanent for 98% of the United States because we want to protect the 2% who are the wealthiest is insane. And let me just puncture that argument one other way. Well, actually, those before, you, before you go into the details, let's revisit what the, those tax cuts actually are and who they impact. 
because um, again, well, not everybody the great is middle class. With that. Yeah, they re- they impact the middle class. I mean, the top two percent is defined as household incomes of two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year and above. That's that's not that's not a lot of people, Howard. I mean, it's literally two percent of the population. No, but so, what I'm saying, the question is first, what which tax cuts are expiring? And oh. what things are going to happen automatically on January 1st Everybody's that everyone is debating about? Yeah, their income tax will rise. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't, the, uh, isn't the withholding tax in there as well, I believe? So you're going to have a, an impact across not, the tax burden, the aggregate tax burden of 98% of the American public will go up on January 2nd. Now, that's crazy in a recession. Why on earth would you do that? It, it makes no sense at all. You don't increase taxes on 98% of the public because you want to protect the tax deduction of the top 2%, particularly when even if the top 2%, if their tax break expires, it will just return them to the taxes they were paying in 1990, which at the time were an all-time low. Mm-hmm. People have to realize, we, the American public has been fed a consistent stream of misinformation. And I always say, you know, it's like that, that great line in the book up on Watergate, you want to know what happened, follow the money. If you want to know what happened to this economy in the last 10, 12 years, just follow the money. Who got richer, who got poorer? And you can be sure that the people who got richer were writing the rules. Well, that happens to be the top 2%. In fact, here's a statistic. I believe it's the top one-tenth of 1%, 13,000 families in America total, own 11% of the wealth that came about last year. 11% in the top half of 1%. So it's a complete distortion. People see this dramatically in CEO pay, which is egregious. They see it in the fact that companies have gotten richer and richer and thereby able to pour more tens of billions of dollars into the political process. Let me give you an example. Here in California, we've got Proposition 23. There are three companies, basically, that have put up 95% of the $8 million to try and get us to roll back our environmental laws. Those three companies are... Two, in, two refineries, okay, Valero and Tesoro, and the Koch brothers, who are multi-billionaire zillionaires who founded the Tea Party, who basically even William F. Buckley you know, mocked when one of them ran uh, as a libertarian years ago, saying these guys were basically you know, they're, they're one step short of bomb throwers. But when you're a multi-billionaire, you can afford to throw any bomb you want. And this is from the Koch Industries, which is probably one of the dirtiest polluting industries of the top 10 and Fortune 500 industries companies. So we're talking about people who, for their own greedy economic interests or to gain power, are willing to create suicidal acts in the American economy. We desperately need the $50 billion the president proposed for infrastructure. Frankly, it should be $250 billion. We desperately need to pass the Frank uh, Rand bill, which would create a movement of some of the military budget into domestic infrastructure and into shoring up Social Security. We cannot afford $700 billion a year, plus the dark budget, for military to keep our empire overseas when America is crumbling inside. Who lives in a city where the streets are properly paved in America? Who lives in a city anymore where gasoline lines aren't blowing up as they are, natural gas lines? Who lives in a city anymore where the infrastructure is not so corroded and so far out of date that we've been living off investments we made in the 50s, 60s, and 70s? None of us. We all live in cities with those problems. So it's time to reinvest in America, and you have to do that. If you're going to try to put trillions of dollars overseas in foreign wars and adventures, you have to be willing to invest at least a portion of that here domestically, or we rot from within, which, by the way, is how every empire falls. So here we have a situation in California where you've got three companies spending $8 million to try and get the, American, to get the California public to get rid of its environmental laws when the single biggest job-creating sector of the California economy for the last two years has been green sector jobs. Right. Now, that is so venal to me, that is so inappropriate, and it's so suicidal. But at the same time, people believe it because they see these ads, which large economic interests are able to run to protect themselves. Right. Ronaldo, let me run you past a couple lines from a recent uh, Paul Krugman article. I'm actually going to read some of these out of sequence. Uh, but they kind of tell a little bit more of that same story. Um, And Krugman writes that perhaps it's more interesting to realize that when billionaires put their might behind so-called grassroots right-wing movements, again, he's talking about the Koch Koch brothers, it's not about ideology, it's about business. Then he goes on to mention that uh, 
every single major Republican contender for the 2012 um, presidential nomination who isn't currently holding office and isn't named Mitt Romney is now a paid political paid contributor to Fox News. And he goes on to talk about how Rupert Murdoch um, has become so powerful that as one Republican analyst mentioned, the Republicans recently thought that Fox worked for us. And now we're discovering that we work for Fox. The man who made that comment, David Froome, um, worked for the American Enterprise Institute, which is about as conservative as you get, uh, Policy Institute, and he was fired for making that comment. And by the way... Criticizing Fox. Yeah, if he wasn't. And I, I just want to make a comment real quick here about American Enterprise Institute. You just said they're the most conservative thing. I disagree. They're not well, conservative. I'm Very bold, one, of the, one of the most. <laughs> no, no, but I'm saying, but I don't even call what they do conservative. I call what they do political hatchet work. Let's call it for what it is, Howard. It's political hatchet work. If they were consistently conservative, I could say, okay. Frankly, I think the Cato Institute is consistently libertarian and conservative, and I don't agree with some of their stuff, but I think it comes from a genuine consistency. AEI, American Enterprise Institute, is clearly a cabal of very wealthy people who put money together to, to create a bunch of hatchet work, really hatchet work, which is ill-founded and poorly, I think, poorly written, frankly, from the point of view of research. So when people say it's the most conservative, no, it's not. Barry Goldwater would roll over in his grave if he read half of what comes out of the American Enterprise Institute. That's a true conservative. Right. So what I, what's a conservative? A conservative is somebody who believes in less tax. Okay, if you can reduce the taxes on 98% of the public, a conservative would say do that. You know, where do we get to the situation in life where a Democratic president is saying let's tax less? It's a good thing let's join hands and sing kumbaya and do it. Where do we, a true conservative would say, let's not interfere with the ability of various states to improve their environmental laws. And let's keep, let's keep the undue effect of money out of politics so that large economic interests aren't able to buy the result they want. Right. See, that's true conservatism. Right. Now, Before we move on, Ronaldo, let me also remind our listeners, one second, a little commercial here, uh, that if you want to raise a question... Uh, those of you who are already on the phone line, simply hit your pound key, uh, and I'll see your hand flash on the screen here, and I'll know to key you in for a question. And for those of you who might be following on the computer, you also need to call us in on the phone line, and that, again, is area code 347-989-8946. I'll repeat that one more time, 347-89, no, I'm sorry, 8989. I'm going to start at scratch. 347 989-8946, and again, hit the pound sign if you have a question I'd like to ask Ronaldo. Okay, any other thoughts on the election? Um, well, I just think... I mean, particularly this, nationally? Well, the Why national think, part, yeah, I mean, as I said a moment ago, Howard, people need to realize that what is at stake, and I, I just gave a talk, literally, I was told there was $100 billion uh, in the room listening, because it was pension fund managers from a group that call themselves the Interfaith Corporate Responsibility Project. And these fund managers came to hear, in part, one of the things that I was trying to say, which was if the switch of the House occurs, and I said this publicly, I do not believe you will recognize what we used to call America within three to five years. Let me tell you what I mean. If the Republicans gain control of the House within... Yeah, for three, six months at least, there'll be a happy dance going on in Wall Street. You'll see the stock market probably go up. You'll see the business community going, oh, great, we're going to throw off the shackles of, of regulation, which is what got us in this problem in the first place, of course. And there'll be this artificial euphoria, which will look like things are going to get better. But because the tactics they will employ, and because the Republican Party itself is in crisis and no one's in charge now, meaning the traditional Republican Party has sort of been taken over by the Tea Party, and the Tea Party is about to take it down rather than build it up, and the Republican Party was already voting on block in a block as the party of no, that means you won't get the fiscal stimulus for infrastructure. You won't get tax lowering on January 1st or get them raised. You, you, what they'll do is they'll do everything they can to strangle the economy in the hopes that that will produce them getting the White House in two years. What they don't realize is the economy won't make it that far. It's too fragile. So we will then head towards the double dip. The problem is, once we hit the double dip, which will further corrode confidence, will further raise uh, unemployment rates, and put enormous pressure on the dollar. 
At that point, we have almost none of our bullets left in our gun. So QE2, or quantitative easement the second time, right. is Actually, the only thing move, left. Bernal, before you move to QE2, which is a topic big in, in itself, let me jump back. I've got a couple of questions that have popped up here. Um, one relates to the Tea Party, and the other one, um, actually, who is really the Tea Party? Uh, that, that's the, why don't we take that on for a second, if you wouldn't mind, clarifying that for audience. People think it's, it's the Sarah Palins, um, but it appears not to be such. No, no, the Tea Look, let's call it ace and ace here. The Tea Party is a corporate movement funded by a very small handful of people managed by Dick Armey, a convicted felon, I might point out, who was thrown out of Congress for his, for his corruption. Dick Armey is one of the principal funnels, supported by Karl Rove and the principles of the, of the financial interest behind Karl Rove, and, and by the Koch brothers. That's who started the Tea Party. So the, this, this supposed grassroots movement has nothing grassroots about it. And what they correctly analyzed was they could move into a Republican primary, talk complete nonsense, and they could, because there's low turnout in the primary, they could knock off Republican seats. They've created more havoc in the Republican Party than they have in the Democratic Party. I mean, I think the seat in Delaware that Christine O'Donnell's running for, uh, uh, frankly, would, the race would be very, very tight if she weren't a Tea Partier and, and basically know nothing. Um, anybody but, uh, what's your name in, in, in Nevada, would be able to knock Harry Reid. The fact that it's a tie right now is because a Tea Party person is running. If it had been a normal Republican, Nevada would already be lost. Harry Reid would be gone. So there's, um, there's, across the country you're going to see these extremists are going to have a hard time. Now, some are going to get elected, of course. <clears throat> but when they do get elected, they're going to have a choice because the way they're going to get elected is by getting tens of millions of dollars from corporate interests. They're either going to have to sing the same tune as everybody else, which they will, or, and, or they'll try to pretend they're still populist, but they aren't. And at the end of the day... A true populist is somebody who wants to see health care for the 40 million, 47 million that weren't covered. A true populist wants to see the tax burden lowered. So I see fractures within the Republican Party because the Tea Party, which has now taken over the Republican Party, the Tea Party is not the Republican Party of old. And it's a, it's a very small group of very wealthy individuals and companies that have created the Tea Party. And people think it's a grassroots movement. To me, it's just they're not they're just wake up and smell the coffee. They're not looking at the data. Right. It actually reminds me of the old uh, novel about Sicily called the, uh, oh, goodness, I can't remember the name. Great movie with Burt Lancaster in it, though. Um, the Leopard. The Leopard. Where the, uh, the Duke's son joins the, the partisans in the revolution against the uh, in, uh, royal forces, um, not so much to join the revolution, but to basically co-opt it so that after the war is over, the people with money and people with power remain in power, and that is exactly what happens. Um, they simply co-opt the revolution for their own purposes. But that brings me to, a, to Which, another question. Which, by the way, doesn't always work, and if you want to know that it, where it doesn't, look at Robespierre. Right. I mean, right. Got, the French Revolution got away from him, and a guy named right. Napoleon and, ended up with the chips. Exactly, which is actually what happened in the, in the Leopard also. Um, mm -hmm. Power re was retained by those who had power before, but just in a slightly different form. Um, but, again, a lot of these polls talking about a Democratic loss of the House tend to be national publicity polls. And there's a, a phenomenon known that when you ask people about Congress, they hate Congress, and they want to get rid of it, they want to change it. But when you ask about their guy or their gal, they say, oh, he's good, I'll keep her or him. Has the so-called Democratic loss of the House been overstated, and will these – elections really turn much, much more on local issues than national issues, and local people supporting their guy, their gal, versus a national uh, upset, uh, public upset with Congress in general, or yeah. Washington in general. Yeah, before I do, I just want to correct. Um, the group I spoke in front of is the Interface Center on Corporate Responsibility. I don't know if I slurred that, but they're a really excellent group, and I want to make sure their name gets out appropriately, because I was very grateful for the opportunity to speak to them and the topic of that was enough is enough, reimagining global prosperity. So that was about how do you get to the positive, not what the negative is. The reason I put it, pointed out about the, the risk of the house changing hands is because I think that is the biggest single thing that stands between us and real prosperity right now. And if it doesn't change hands, I'm very bullish on where we're going next in terms of the economy. That said, specifically, I think the, um, the way to look at this, this, this whole uh, Tea Party issue, Howard, 
I believe that the uh, we we have to look at the frustration and the alienation. I think that's real. Does that manifest itself in house district by house district, as you're asking? I'm not sure. I think what it does is it makes those house races, which were potentially vulnerable, more likely to get upset and have the, for example, someone who came in for the first time elected in a primarily Republican district, but riding Obama's coattails, very well may not get reelected the second time, meaning in this environment. Mm-hmm. Now, you and I both know the statistics are that 95% of the Congress always gets reelected. But I think this year will be different. I don't think it will be that high. I think that there are probably at least 15% of the seats that are up for grabs. And some people would say more than that. So will people reject their own congressman? Yes, if they, if they drink the Kool-Aid. So if, peop, if, if the average small person, the blue-collar worker, or the, the, the small business owner, doesn't understand how financially good for them health care is, reform, yeah, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. I mean, it's suicidal to, to try even talk about uh, taking health care back to the dark ages we left. Is it perfect? No, but it's so much better than what we had. And by the way, all the abuses that I hear people say in the Tea Party that come about because of health care reform are the exact precise abuses that we're, we've incurred year after year after year. Insurance companies with too much power. Insurance companies with the ability to discontinue your policy even after you get sick. Insurance companies allow the authority to say you've got a pre-existing condition even when you didn't. Insurance companies able to kick your children off your policy at the age of 24. I mean, it goes on and on. So we've had insurance companies telling your doctor what they can do. So that, the person in the examining room with you isn't, isn't the government with your doctor. It's the insurance company. And we've got to change that relationship. Now, is that enough resentment conceivably in a district that changed hands narrowly last time? Yes. It's enough to check it so that you would have a turnover that's larger. I don't think, however, that it is a foregone conclusion the House will be lost. And, in fact, the reason I raised this comment in this show is because I want everybody listening to do everything they can to see that really responsible, articulate people are elected to Congress. If somebody says, roll back Obama health care, they're not responsible, they should know better. If someone says we shouldn't give tax cuts to the 98%, don't elect them. If somebody says we don't need infrastructure spending of $50 billion and I won't vote for it, don't elect them. If somebody says we shouldn't take part of the military budget, 5 to 10%, and move it into the civilian sector to shore up Social Security, infrastructure, and the other needs of the domestic society, don't elect them. So people need to get smart. If you think of, and I'll just tick them off here for a second, the things that have happened in the last two years far exceed what Franklin Delano Roosevelt achieved in his first four. The first act the president signed was equal pay for women. People forget that. That happened in the first week. Um, student loan reform. We've taken billions of dollars of paper profits away from the banks and reduced the cost of the student loan program, and the banks had no risk because the government guaranteed it anyway. Um, it gives more students a chance to go to college. Uh, number three, financial reform. Not the perfect world we wanted, but in the biggest change since 1933. Um, the health care, enormous. The first time in the history of America since Harry Truman that we've been able to get a health care program that begins, to, begins, not even ends, but begins the process of looking like the rest of the 27 industrial nations in the world. So we've got, all, and, and I could list more. The point is, there is the stimulus. That without the stimulus, we'd have been toast. And then the fact that we didn't go into a depression, which was brilliant. So all of these things have been achieved in less than 24 months, and people are unhappy. Why? Because they're uncertain and they're afraid. And why are they in fear? Because that's what the Republican Party, I hate to say, has been selling. Fear, fear, fear. That's how they stayed in office under Bush. That's how they're trying to stay in office now. And at the end of the day, fear is not where the American people need to go. Where we need to go is how do we make this better? How do we, I'm not giving up on the dream that my children will have a better world than me. I know that's achievable. I'm not willing to give up on the fact that because I want to do what's right environmentally, somehow it will lower my economic status. In fact, the opposite is true. One quick statistic. The amount of... Renal, before, we, before we do that, we're actually moving into our... Uh time to do our lightning round. Okay. And I know we have a lot of stuff related to the election that we still want to cover, including the Republican Economic Plan, the QE2. What I'd like to do is first, again, repeat our call-in number for anyone else, and then uh, segue back to the lightning round, and then after the lightning round, come back to these other issues and try to weave them all together. All right? Sure. Okay. Again, it's a reminder, if you want to place a question and you're already on the phone line, hit the pound key and we'll queue you in. 
If you want to call in, it's area code 347-989-8946. Again, so let's move to the lightning round where we talk about commodities and other areas uh, with a particular emphasis this time around on what plays may be good pre and post the election coming up and how the election turns on that. Well, um, pre the election, I think um, you're going to see gold continue to remain strong. Uh, I'm not recommending people buy gold. As you know, Howard, I hold quite a bit of gold in my own portfolio. I started buying it at $550 an ounce. Um, at $1,350 an ounce, it's at a very high place. Will it go higher? Yes, if the fear continues. And, in fact, if the Republicans take control of the House, I suspect gold will go up even further relative to the dollar. The dollar itself, I see further depreciation coming. As you probably noticed, Howard, one of the commodities is called oil. So oil's back up in the 85 to 98 range. Why? I think because actually it was low, low 80s is what I saw the other day. Unless it's yeah, but it's, 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 you're talking between now and the election shortly thereafter, you're, you're going to be in the 85 to 90 range. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and probably higher. So, in fact, I'd say maybe as high as 95. Why? Because the dollar's weaker, so it buys less oil, so you've got to get more, more oil. But because the oil industry, the oligopoly, is capable of driving the price north after elections. So and people don't and, and I would might add driving it south before elections, which is what although, they've done consistently uh, every although two they, years. Although they weren't able to keep it as far south on this one as they wanted to. Now what people don't realize is the price of oil going that high, eighty-five to ninety-five, puts additional stress on the American economy, which is all the more reason why we need green sector jobs. And the fact that we continue to suck the back of our tailpipe of our cars and die from the carbon monoxide poisoning it gives us is insane to me. But that said, and and, and I do believe the price of oil, as a commodity, will continue to be strong and probably even get 10% stronger. Um, as I said, gold, I think, will unfortunately continue to be strong because of the fear. If the Republicans take the House, it will go up in value. Um, I think you're going to see uh, corn. That is not an artificial blip. Corn's at a very high price. It's going to stay there. Uh, I think soybeans blipped up, starting to come down. 2011, I see them going back up. Why? Very simple. Climate change is now affecting our aggregate ability to create food on the planet at a time when the population of the planet continues to grow. And you can expect further climatical disruptions of agriculture and therefore further stress on, for example, the price of soybeans will go up because as more and more land is put into corn, less land into soybeans, the price of the soybeans you do grow will go up, and soybeans is something that is the second most uh, common commodity after corn. See, the same thing will happen to wheat, by the way. So food-based commodities, you can expect, no matter who wins the election, will go up. If the Republicans win, because of the crisis that will cause in America within, I'm going to say, less than 24 months, certainly 9 to 12, 14 months tops, that crisis will then depreciate the dollar further, making commodities even more valuable. Unfortunately, Howard, if the House goes to the Republicans, I believe the economy will deteriorate so badly in America that it could actually trip a second global economic monetary collapse. If it does, then a lot of what I'm saying, all bets are off, uh, although food commodities is probably a safer place to play. Right. Uh, so there seems to be an interesting uh, scenario being played out right now, and I'd like to love to hear your comments on this, that as the U.S. dollar seems to be weakening, and in fact it's only $1.38 to the, to the euro, which is not that unusual a range, um, had been as high as 160 just before the economic crisis of 2008, Every currency seems to be thinking, well, how do I devalue against everybody else so I keep essentially parity? And everyone seems to be trying to reposition themselves, and the net effect is that nothing's changing in terms of where currencies are relative to each other. Thoughts on that? Well, actually, yeah, I do. First of all, uh, I think people who have been listening to the show for the last six or eight months know I've been saying anytime you can get a Brazilian industrial development bond, where the real is at 60 cents or less to the dollar, buy it. Well, it crossed over. It's now 60 cents to the dollar. Um, that's a real firming. I mean, we started giving that advice. It was at 41. So when you take the difference between 41 to 60, you're talking about a huge change. That's a 50% growth. 50% growth in that one currency. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. and, and by the way, the Brazilians are doing everything they can to talk the currency down, as you know. Right. In fact, a very good question for next month would be, do I think, the Brazilians will devalue the currency, and that is going to be an important question that people could make a lot of money or lose a lot of money on the answer to. So maybe we should put that on the list for next month. But, but let me go back to the euro. If you take the euro and you chart it 
out over the last six months, you've seen a very steady, consistent appreciation, which you should see against the dollar. Is it as high as it once was? No. It got banged down by a lot of questions which, frankly, make Europe unstable, the biggest one being there is no solution to Greece. So there's a temporary solution. We, we propped it up for two years, max. But at the end of two years, all the same problems that caused the Greek debt to be worthless are still there in space, i.e. Right, which wouldn't that, that we, again, weaken the euro uh, relative to the dollar. So, again, what we're looking at potentially, and, again, correct me if you have a different reception, and I think you do, all, if all currencies start to try to devalue, then they're all in the same place again. No, but see, but, but they're not because the macro conditions are changing. So let's talk. My favorite currency is the Chinese renminbi or yuan. Now, that currency is not going to devalue relative to others. Why? Because they've got 1.2 billion people. There's no outside external influence that could possibly force them to do it. They might be able to stop it from appreciating, but that'll be hard. So as the other currencies fall in value, by default, theirs becomes more valuable. Now, they're trying to stay pegged to the dollar, stay pegged to the euro, but at the end of the day, it's going to be very difficult to achieve that. The, the Brazilians have a, a, a thornier problem. The Brazilians are saying, well, we're going to devalue our currency so that we stay relative for export markets the same as the dollar. They can't do that because Brazil is dependent upon foreign investment to keep its economy pumping. You can't do that to foreign investors. You can't bring them into your country one day and devalue your currency the next. And I think Lula's smart enough to know that. And we believe, I think the, the consensus is, that Lula's assistant will carry on Lula's policies. If that's true, it's hard to see how Brazil can get away with devaluing, even if they might want to. You can go currency by currency. <clears throat> the, I believe, Howard, that the issue about Greece, and you've heard me talk about that in this program, is a deeper issue. It's an issue about the flaw in the monetary union in the European community, not in the political union. People in America are parochial. They forget not every European country that's in the European Union is in the economic or monetary union. Therefore, there are countries with the free border crossing and elimination of tariffs, like, say, the Czech Republic, who aren't currently in the euro. Britain is another example. Well, because of that, they, they never figured out a way to get somebody out of the euro who wasn't living up to the rest of the community standards. What Greece has forced people to do is to recognize that was a central flaw in monetary union. I believe the Europeans are starting to address that question, and I believe they will have to come up with an answer before the two years is up. If they do, and if the Republicans don't control the House, then what will happen is the Europeans will continue to address that problem, and in fact, will get that problem solved, I believe, within two years. If the Republicans take control of the House because of the economic calamity here it will cause in the U.S., the euro will probably get hurt very badly for quite some period of time, although eventually, two to ten years out, certain key parts of Europe, like Germany, will link up with China, with Singapore, with a couple of key elements of Southeast Asia, with Australia, with a couple of places in Latin America, like Brazil, and they will create a new economic order after a very bloody, awful, ugly global recession. And when that new economic order is created, the U.S. dollar will no longer be the reserve currency. And people in this country will wonder what happened to them. And the answer is they went to sleep and drank the Kool-Aid and elected people who basically want to create economic harm at a time when we need to create economic gain. Well, and we've got to do that saying, economic gain because it's not only the right thing to do for the people in America, it's the only smart thing to do. Well, from what you're saying, it makes me glad that the two languages, foreign languages I've studied were German and Chinese. Absolutely. Um, you're going to be a very important guy. my suitcase is packed. Um, but, again, let me ask you again. You won't, hey, Howard, you won't even have to pack your suitcases. You'll be able to do it from here. That's true. That Think about it. When true. Rome fell and we stopped using Roman consuls, because we did it in a precipitous way, we had 600 years we call the Dark Ages. It got so bad, Howard, we forgot, to make, we forgot how to make cement. Well, I don't think that's going to happen this time. This time it's going to be a two- to eight-year collapse. But what will happen is strong countries like China, which for their own political purposes will keep domestic order and therefore keep the Chinese yuan in circulation, those forces are going to be big enough that they're going to be able to withstand watching the American empire really collapse. And as it collapses, there'll be a huge amount of global instability because the international financial system built to the dollar will collapse with it as well or actually have a heart attack. And when that seizure occurs, people have to start figuring out how to rebuild around it. What it will do to America is worse than what happened in the Great Depression, but it won't have that big an effect on China. 
Now, you mentioned that your, the Chinese currency is one of your favorite ideas. Isn't it very difficult at this point to buy uh, into Chinese currencies? Isn't that fairly well controlled, unlike other currencies? Well, it is, as you know. Um, and it's, it's, it's not like you can go down to the bank and pick it up easily. But I think that what people realize is that the Chinese have to allow their currency to float to, for example, Australia if they want to buy raw materials for Chinese infrastructure. They won't be able to control it as closely as they do now is my point. Will you be able to go down to the bank tomorrow morning and buy a, a wheelbarrow full? No. It will be a little more difficult than that. Yeah, I'm not but even sure if there's, if there's even a tracking ETF. Um, oh, exactly. I just don't want a tracking ETF. Because a tracking ETF means you got caught up in somebody else's game, and when they collapse, you collapse. That's sort of like right. owning, owning shares that Lehman Brothers is holding for you. Thanks, but no thanks. No, right. you, have to get, you have to get into that economy. And there are ways in there. I mean, this show is going to be – I can't go into it today, but – you know, when you've got places like Hong Kong and Macau that have to pump money, have to have high circulation of currency to, to exist, which China desperately wants to keep moving, when you have uh, this giant open mine called Australia, which they have to keep mining, when there's no longer a U.S. dollar to prop up the purchase, when you've got the Chinese, for example, wanting to buy key assets in Africa, Asia, uh, Latin America, when you've got all that happening, the Chinese have no choice, but they're going to force to use their own currency when the U.S. currency is no longer the reserve currency. And if the scenario I'm projecting could happen happens, the U.S. will not be the reserve currency. And by the way, I think there will be enormous social instability in America. And it okay. scares me because this is a country with 350 million guns. But anyway, well, let's get to two more questions that I had postponed uh, for the currency area, I'm rather the commodity area. Um, first, um, there's a lot of talk of you know, the Republican so-called economic plan that they've announced, and there's what they talk about in public, and then there's what they don't talk about. Do you see there being a Republican economic plan or a shadow plan behind the scenes? That's no, you, I, I've never heard one. Have you? Uh, nothing looking. that's coherent. I've heard a lot of negative. I haven't heard I've it. I've heard an actual plan. No, I've heard um, none. But again, even none. if you're looking at the, the Koch brothers, um, can we say they have a plan? No, their, their plan is anarchy. <clears throat> and that's what I'm, I'm borrowing. Basically, uh, their view is that if there were less and less government, they, as aristocrats, would control more and more of what surrounds them. They are that wrong. Is plan. That they're is the plan that you say they're wrong. Okay. No, they're wrong, but their plan is to destabilize and aggregate their own power and wealth as a result. That's shallow. It's inaccurate. It won't happen. And what will happen is they'll end up creating such a destabilization, I think even their wealth could be swept away. I mean, if you're talking about who's the Robespierre in this particular revolution, it's those guys. So I, I think that the, um, the issue right now is, are people willing to do the hard work of asking the tough questions and getting to the polls and supporting economic policies that are in their own economic self-interest. If they are, everything will be just fine. If they're not, if they want to drink the Kool-Aid, if they're too lazy to go investigate the facts, what will happen is they will get precisely what they're afraid of. They okay. will get the let's, collapse they think might happen. All right, let's get on to the other question, which is QE2. And as I joked with you before we started the show this morning, the very first time I ever saw that expression, I thought, oh, the Queen Elizabeth II, why are they talking about that in the Financial Times? It, it, and then I realized they're talking about QE2 standing for quantitative easing of money supply number two, uh, which is an economic term. But, Ronald, why don't you explain what that actually means in practice, quantitative easing, and then, from a theoretical point of view, and then in practical terms, how that's going to impact the economy and what kind of tool is it really for the Fed to be using at okay. this time? First of all, the Fed in, the, in private would tell you engaging in QE2 or quantitative easement for the second time is an act of utter desperation. It's the last thing you do when you have absolutely no more bullets in your gun. It, it what means actually to, is quantitative easement? And what it is is it's printing more money unrestricted printing of money. So quantitative easement is saying we can't get the economy to work anymore, any better, so 
So we'll just keep pumping more and more money when we've already pumped so much money. We've printed so much money. We've already put downward pressure on the dollar because it's, we don't have the economy to back up that amount of printing press. We know what happened after World War I when the Weimar Republic tried to do this. And they started printing more money because they printed too much money. And before that long, they ended up where a wheelbarrow of marks is what it took to get a loaf of bread. That's where quantitative easement goes because it's looked at as a stopgap measure. In other words, quantitative easement is like putting a tourniquet on your shattered arm that's bleeding profusely. But if you leave that tourniquet on too long, you'll get gangrene and you'll lose an arm anyway, and you might kill the entire patient. So what you really... Let me tell you the devil's advocate here for a second. Now, the Democrats have been pushing for, and a lot of the columnists have been writing for, economic stimulation of pumping more money into the economy at a time when, in fact, all federal, state, local, municipal spending has actually dropped significantly. We're actually at a negative stimulus right now for new spending since 2008, not a positive one, which in part may be why we're looking at deflation as a threat. So... Typically, you add money, you create inflation. Isn't that a positive thing to be doing? Wouldn't that stimulate more economic activity? No, not if all you're doing is printing money. In other words, if you're not creating economic activity by printing money, then it does you no good at all. See, the idea of borrowing money, as an example, the federal government borrowing $50 billion, putting it into infrastructure, and creating three, four, five hundred billion dollars $500 billion worth of value, which, and I can explain how you get to those numbers, but they're quite accurate. Mm-hmm. That, okay. That's a smart thing. That's like you and me, Howard, going out into the bank, and we borrow $1,500, and we buy a couple of sewing machines, and we open up a little shop, and we start making dresses, and we sell them for a profit. Cool. So borrowing to put into an asset is a good thing. And people in this country got to start realizing bridges are assets. Paved streets are assets. Trains that work are assets. Air, uh, uh, freeways that you can drive on that aren't so congested that you can't get anywhere are assets. And those assets produce the ability to create a, a rising economic tide. There is no free lunch here. You've got to buy the asset, you've got to have a sewing machine, or you can't make the dress. Now, quantitative easement is different. Quantitative easement is saying we aren't going to invest any money. We're just going to pump it into the banks. We're going to authorize the banks to start creating more and more currency. That's what QE2 is. It's creating currency by the artificial device of the federal government through the Fed, the Fed saying we are increasing our balance sheet by $100 billion because we just authorized $100 billion to be printed. The problem is, just like Pancho Villa after the Mexican Revolution or the Weimar Republic after World War I, if you keep printing paper and you don't buy any assets, what happens is the paper becomes worthless. So that's why the dollar is falling. Because well, what's even, happening, even, even again, even from a literal mechanical step, Fed prints more money. Where do those physical dollar bills go? Do they go? Do they get well, assigned to the federal budget, or do they get no, distributed to local no, banks? Where does no. that money go? Literally, they pump it through the economy. Mm-hmm. So the banks have access to it, and what do the banks do with it? You said earlier in this phone call, they go off and gamble. Mm-hmm. They create derivatives. That doesn't create any wealth. That's just gambling. They go out and create speculation. That doesn't create wealth. That's just gambling. So if you take and create more paper, but you don't create wealth, what you, what you really do is you create speculation, then those who control the gambling casinos get richer and richer. We saw that in 2008, right? To the point where Greenspan, former, Secretary, former, Treasury, uh, former head of the Fed, said he underestimated that they wouldn't stop that they would keep going with such greed that they basically kill themselves. He thought that, you know, at some point self-regulation would take over because too much greed will kill anything. They were right, pigging out. Greenspan was always the opinion that, that greed self-corrected, and that was his big fallacy. It never self-corrects, it self-destructs. Right, and that, and by the way, is what he testified, demonstrated. he testified that a year ago in front of the House. Mm-hmm. That was his big mistake. Now, I think he made other mistakes. Let's not go into that. But at the point, same point is greed does self-destruct. It doesn't self-correct. So when you create more paper and you give it to the same guys that created the 2008 crisis and you tell them to go gamble and have a good time, boys, that's what they're going to do. And the rich will get richer for a while. The poor will get poorer. The middle class will get screwed, which is exactly what's been happening for the last all through the 
through the Bush years, and that's a statistic, that's not my opinion. If you look at the, at the amount of money concentrated in various segments of society, the rich got richer and the poor got poorer in the Bush years. Now, Obama comes in, he's trying to rebalance that. I don't think he's trying to steal from the rich. I think he's just trying to bring them back to normal, reasonable levels because the country got out of control. It got out of balance. And you need to rebalance in order to have a strong, vibrant consumer economy, which we don't have because there's too much money locked in too few hands. And the common person struggling too hard. So what Obama's doing is exactly what you should do if you're trying to even the playing field for the little guy. What's amazing is the little guy doesn't get it. I mean, I'm right. shocked. Right. We're, right now, now that we have four minutes left uh, in the program, at first yeah. I wanted to thank all of those listeners who have sent in questions um, prior to the show, which we've been able to you know, use in some form. Uh, and also to encourage those of you who are listening that in the future to please email your, your questions to the Academy. Uh, or topics you'd like to hear. Uh, but, Ronaldo, why don't you try to wrap this up for us and, and give us your final thoughts uh, before we sign off for the day. Yeah, I think that the final thought is this. Today was a, I, had to, I had to share a lot of negative information. I feel bad about that because we're doing so much right right now. I don't think that Obama has failed in terms of the legislation he's gotten passed. I think he's succeeded beyond my expectation. Where he has clearly failed is he's failed to bring the American public along with him. How he underestimated that and why he estimated that, I do not know. But if there's one thing that everybody listening to this call should know right now, it is in their individual economic self-interest to get out there and support economic policies that make sense. And even if you're in the top 2% listening to this, you still should go out there and support economic policies that make sense because if your tax rate goes up a little bit on January 2nd and everybody else stays down, the consumer economy will come back and you'll get richer anyway. And the fallacy that somehow if we let the top 2% make more, they'll invest it somehow in buying things, that's silly. When you give somebody who's already a mega, mega, mega billionaire an extra 10 bucks, he puts it in a savings account. He doesn't go out and spend it the way you give 10 bucks to somebody who's struggling to make their mortgage. They put the 10 bucks into the bank to make the mortgage, or they spend $10 for a loaf of bread, or they spend $10 for some gas. So wait, what you need to do is look at where the money's going, how the money gets spent. If, if, if the Democrats can retain control of the House, and if Obama has learned his lesson, which is he cannot be so cavalier, he has got to bring the American public along with him, he's got to do a better job explaining what, why this is in their interest, he's got to do a better job with a better microphone. It's going to be hard, because the Citizens United case allows unlimited giving, corporate giving, and as you've seen in this election, the amount of money being spent by small corporate interest to control the outcome has, is without any conceivable precedent. It is What's also it's interesting is that reports a lot of the money flowing into a lot of these uh, ultra-conservative right-wing packs are actually foreign dollars. That's right. Well, the American Chamber of Commerce, I think, is funneling foreign dollars, and that's illegal. Right. But it's happening. So, so, the, the, so the, the country has its work cut out. But what Americans must do individually, regardless of whether Republicans or Democrats, and I think there's a lot of great Republicans in this country who actually have solid values and who might even agree with 80% of what I'm saying because they understand the implications of this economic policy. We have to be starting. We, have, we can't keep doing block, block, block for political advantage. We have to pull together, pull together, pull together for collective advantage. Now, it's not about being a Democrat. It's not about being a Republican. It's about sound economic policies. It's about taking the trouble to educate yourself on the issues. It's about getting past the headlines and digging into the story. It's about getting past the point where all you're listening is this echo chamber of, of happy talk and, 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 and garbage that gets spewed out and really focusing on what's at stake. And what's at stake is not only your future generations, your kids and your grandkids. Candidly, what's at stake is your ability to hold the job you already have. And that will not happen. The unemployment rate will go up in this country dramatically if the House changes hands. And you can bank on it. You can absolutely bank on it. I'm banking on it. In fact, call next month when you come in on this call. If that has happened, I'll give you a series of things you can do to try and protect yourself in the coming challenging times. But what I would say is this. I hate to be the bearer of bad tidings. I'd rather be the bearer of good tidings. I'd love to be in the position next call of saying, well, the House didn't transfer. It was a narrow miss. And now let's talk about what we want our government to do, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, working together. What do we want them to do to make our lives better so that we can continue on, we can continue lowering um, 
unemployment. We can continue the, re- the, re- the re- we can continue ending the recession. We can continue raising the economy and doing it at a faster level. That's what I want to focus on next month. I hope I get the chance to do that. I hope we do too. And as an old Chinese sage once said, "May you live in interesting times," and we certainly are. And with that, Ronaldo, our time for this month is up. I appreciate all of you uh, who've been listening today. We actually had a record audience, according to our screens. Um, and we hope you'll be back with us next month. Where we'll find out what happened November 2nd. Thank you again, and good day. Thanks to everyone else. Thank you, Ronaldo. Bye-bye. You.